Welcome to The Politics Show, episode 9. I'm recording a day before the 15th of August. That makes it the 14th of August. What does that mean, folks? It means that many of our beloved students, our listeners, our teachers will be on tender hooks tonight because the 15th of August is A-level exam results day. So I've said it before, I'll say it again. I wish you all the very best luck in the world. I hope that you get the grade that you've been pining for. On with the show folks, today we are going to be talking about federalism and whether or not it still exists. So here we go. So what is federalism? Federalism is where political power is divided between the national aka federal government, and state governments, each government having its own area of substantial jurisdiction. So you have the federal government on the one hand that has lots of power, and state governments on the other hand having lots of power. Now, if the USA is federal, what we're talking about there is that power is shared, that the states share power with the federal government and vice versa i.e. the states are very, very powerful. If the United States is no longer federal, if it doesn't exist anymore, then we have to presume that that power that the states once had has been centralised, i.e. the federal government dominates the states. Nowhere is the word federal or federalism mentioned in the Constitution. How, then, was it written into the document. And we have to understand this because the states and the federal government will point to different aspects of the constitution to claim their right to specific powers. So, number one, it was written in the constitution through the so-called enumerated powers of the federal government or the three branches of the federal government. Enumerated is another word for specific. So, for example, the US president will be commander-in-chief. That is a specific enumerated power to the federal government, in this case, the president. There are also, number two, implied powers of the federal government. Things in the constitution that seem suggested or suggestive of uh, being claimed by the national government, the federal government. Then number three, we have what's called the concurrent powers. Now, these are powers that are shared between the federal and state government. The fourth area, or the fourth part of the Constitution, is the Tenth Amendment, which reserved all remaining powers, those that were not enumerated to the national government, to the states and to the people. So the Tenth Amendment is often an amendment that the states cite whenever they're in front of the Supreme Court, uh, claiming that they have... A specific power rather than the federal government. And number five is the Supreme Court itself. The Supreme Court was set up to be the umpire of all disagreements between the federal government and uh, the state governments. So we've defined federalism, we've talked a little bit about where it comes from. Um, what are we going to discuss? Well, um, there are perhaps four areas we need to look at. We need to look at the Constitution itself, particularly the Tenth Amendment. 
we need to look at the limits to so-called mandates and executive orders. These are um, laws that contain um, requirements of states um, to do certain things, that mandates, and executive orders are um, orders that the president has made requiring states to do certain things. We also have to look at Supreme Court decisions and actions by the current president, Donald Trump. So if we're going to look at all those four things, the Constitution, particularly the 10th Amendment, the limits to mandates and EOs, executive orders, Supreme Court decisions that appear to favour the states and actions that tr of Trump that appear to favour the states, then we can come to a conclusion that the states are still powerful and federalism still exists. To counter that... We are going to look at different areas of the Constitution rather than the Tenth Amendment. We're going to look at these elastic clauses, uh, clauses like the words general welfare. Congress shall look after the general welfare of the United States. These vague clauses that are jumped upon um, by the uh, federal government and claimed uh, for themselves. Um, areas of the Constitution where the federal government claims to uh, rightly uh, claim that power. We're also going to look at executive orders and mandates that appear to then give the president, give Congress power over the states. We're going to look at Supreme Court decisions that have favoured the federal government. And we're going to look at actions by Trump that appear to centralise power in Washington. So those four areas, constitution, mandates and EOs, Supreme Court decisions and actions by Trump. What is my direction. While the federal government has indeed grown in power at the expense of the states since the United States Constitution was created, that's undoubtedly true, the journey has not been in a straight line. The federal-state relationship fluctuates and thus the extent of federalism's erosion uh, is not a permanent thing. It is in flux. Therefore, I'm going to be arguing essentially that federalism by and large is not dead. And so the first thing we're going to be looking at is the US Constitution itself, the different clauses that appear to harm federalism and the other clauses that appear to preserve it. So after the jingles, we'll speak again. There are those who claim that the Constitution's elasticity has harmed federalism. Now, when I'm talking about elasticity, I'm talking about those vague sections of the Constitution that are seized upon by the federal government um, as justification for enacting certain laws. I'm going to come on to those in a second. When I'm talking about the word harmed, that the, the Constitution's elasticity has harmed federalism, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. I'm just making observation that power sharing has been affected, that there is less power sharing if the federal government is using these elastic clauses in order to justify its legislation. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution states that Congress has the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. blah de blah 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 uh, I think you just need to uh, cite the necessary and proper clause rather than giving the entire quote. The clause is also known as the elastic clause because it allows Congress to stretch its powers. What does necessary mean? What does proper mean? 
Um, does necessary mean having a healthcare programme at the federal level, for example? So right from the start of the union, the Bill of Rights appeared to establish what Ashby calls national rights, and thus the likelihood that the federal government would grow in power over time in order to enforce those national rights. The ability of the federal government to regulate interstate interstate commerce, for example, another vague clause, what is interstate commerce, um, would allow the federal government sweeping powers over the states, especially in times of economic crisis. However, the constitution itself ensures that federalism continues to exist. We've already identified the number of areas uh, where federalism, although not mentioned, is is there, the Tenth Amendment being the most obvious one. That gives the states the power over all matters which were not given specifically to the federal government. Ashby says this amendment is, I quote, pulling the constitution towards states' rights, end quote. You also have those concurrent powers, as I mentioned, powers shared between the federal and state government. So when we're just looking at the constitution... The overall direction here, the mini evaluation, if you like, is that the Constitution established an inbuilt tension, conscious or otherwise, which would make it difficult to completely ignore the states. We have those elastic clauses that favour the federal government on the one hand, but we have the Tenth Amendment on the other. Shortly after Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, known to some, Florida and 12 other states brought actions seeking a declaration that the ACA was unconstitutional on several grounds and in the Sebelius case 2012 this court ruled that the individual mandate the the requirement that individuals had to have health insurance exceeded Congress's enumerated powers under the Commerce Clause and that the Medicaid expansions were unconstitutionally coercive and thus uh, in a way, striking down some of the things the federal governments were compelling states and individuals in those states to do. Yet the court let the majority of that Affordable Care Act stand. Obamacare still just about exists. Thus, you, you, you have a situation where the federal government seems to be able to pass health care reforms, but at the same time has been restricted Um, mainly as a result of state pushback in the courts. Thus, that inbuilt tension within the Constitution is there and apparent to see. So if we're looking at the Constitution and we're examining this question, does federalism still exist? The answer is yes, it does. It's a battle between states and federal government. Now, I want to come on to mandates and executive orders and the argument that they harm state power. They erode state power and therefore limit or erode federalism. Now, what are federal mandates? These are laws passed through Congress that require states to implement a new policy. They often direct the states to spend on programmes that would not otherwise uh, have been receiving funding from those states. So they're requiring the states to do things they would not otherwise do. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals programme, also known as DACA, which Obama initiated by executive order in 2012, 
granted protected status to over a million persons brought by their parents to the USA illegally when they were children. Now, the expansion includes any person brought to the USA uh, in 2009 or earlier. These people would have temporary legal status and be eligible to work in the USA. So what Obama was doing there was loosening some of those immigration laws um, to take account of the fact that many of these illegal immigrants were brought to the country when they were children through no fault of their own. And the only country they'd really ever known was the United States. So this executive order overrode the instincts of um, state law enforcement to remove such people from the country. Um, President Obama also signed the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, in 2015, which replaced the No Child Left Behind um, Act. Now, this law was criticised for increasing the federal government's role in K-12 education and for relying too heavily on standardised tests, among other things. In addition to that, the $4.35 billion programme called Race to the Top, the Race to the Top Fund, uh, was a competitive grant programme and that was designed to encourage and reward states that were creating the conditions for education, innovation and reform. The programme was a competition among states for federal funding with certain stipulations. For example, states had to promise to implement specific school reforms favoured by the federal government. So some of this money is coming with strings attached and standards um, and so on and undermining what states would otherwise do. However, there are limits to these mandates and executive orders. Not all mandates, EOs, and laws centralise power. The Wall Street Journal in 2015 hailed the ESSA programme as the largest devolution of federal control to the states in a quarter of a century as far as education was concerned. And ESSA significantly reduced the federal role in turning around or closing struggling schools by allowing states substantial flexibility to determine a school success or failure. States often as well ignore executive orders and mandates or initiate litigation uh, to try and strike them down. In Texas, for example, um, then-Governor Abbott informed President Obama by letter that he had directed the relevant state agency to not participate in the resettlement of any Syrian refugees in the state of Texas, despite Obama uh, calling for states uh, to participate in that scheme. So states still determine most of their own policies. In 2017, Trump also initiated executive orders um, that seem to get rid of some of the restrictions of the states. Um, for example, he rejected the Paris Climate Change Treaty, but 11 states, including New York and California, said that they would continue to abide by the conditions of that treaty. So different states have different um, ways of approaching what the president is doing. And also different states have, for example, different laws on transgender bathroom requirements. So what's the minimum, what's the mini evaluation? Well, some actions at federal level, particularly executive orders and mandates, harm federalism, i.e. reduce state power. But not all of those EOs and mandates do so, and there are limits to them. It largely depends on the ideology of the president, 
Uh, if a president is a former governor, for example, like Bill Clinton, they might better understand um, the concerns states have at being required to do all sorts of things without the funding for it. Um, it may well uh, depend on the reaction of the states. Some states might be more progressive and therefore keep certain environmental regulations um, or not. So um, therefore, whether or not these EOs and mandates harm federalism largely depends on who's in the White House and what the states do in reaction to them. We now turn our attention to the Supreme Court and I'm going to look firstly at cases that appear to have harmed federalism, i.e. that have centralised power, ruled in favour of the federal government. The Sebelius case in 2012 ultimately defended Obamacare, struck down a few things, but ultimately defended the right of the federal government and the president to introduce new laws in healthcare, even if the states didn't want those. Um, and in Gonzalez v. Raich in 2005, um, the Supreme Court used the Commerce Clause of the US Constitution, one of those elastic clauses that we mentioned earlier, to say that Congress may criminalise the production and use of homegrown cannabis even if state law allows it. So you could be in your basement in Massachusetts uh, growing weed and um, the state could say that's fine, um, as Massachusetts, I think, does. But what this court case said was, well, the state may say it's fine, but you could still be uh, arrested uh, under federal law. In Whole Woman's Health v. Hellestat 2016, uh, the court struck down... Um, very strict abortion laws in Texas. Um, Texas were requiring requiring abortion clinics to meet very, very stringent health standards, which all but one, I think, in the state could not meet. Um, and what the uh, court said was that is actually interfering uh, with the woman's right to choose. You're denying access uh, to um, uh, uh, abortion, which you're not allowed to do um, under the Roe v. Wade case of 1973 that the Supreme Court ruled on. And so therefore struck down um, those Texas laws in the Hellestat case. So that had far reaching consequences for state authority when it came to regulating access to abortion and ultimately um, said that states cannot put an undue burden on women. Um, when seeking uh, an abortion. However, some Supreme Court decisions appear to have preserved federalism, i.e. they've ruled in the favour of the states. In 2013, in the Shelby v Holder uh, decision, um, the court ruled that um, Texas uh, could actually uh, introduce uh, voter ID laws um, that some people say led to unfair uh, voter suppression uh, amongst uh, minority communities. The Supreme Court ruled that actually the, the states uh, had the right uh, to establish their own rules uh, of, of an election and actually in doing so struck down key parts of the Voting Rights Act, which was a federal law which um, required uh, states with a history of, of racial uh, intimidation uh, to ask Congress for permission to change electoral law. What, what the Supreme Court was saying is they no longer had to ask the Congress uh, to, uh, for permission. They could introduce their new voter ID requirements, for example. So the Shelby v Holder case appeared to be giving power back to the states 
in that regard. Um, equally, we talked about DACA earlier. Well, when Barack Obama tried to introduce uh, more lenient immigration rules uh, for the parents of children of undocumented migrants, um, the Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. And that was a court case entitled US v Texas, US v Texas 2016. And that appeared to say that actually Texas and other states on the border could uh, send back those parents if they want. Um, so we now also have in the Supreme Court um, a 5-4 conservative majority, and that will likely rule in favour of increasing uh, state power. Um, because conservatives tend to believe in limited government. Um, in United States v. Windsor in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the provision uh, of the Defence of Marriage Act, so-called DOMA, uh, federal law, uh, that denied federal benefits to same-sex couples in states that recognise same-sex marriage. Well, um, that by striking down federal law, you're saying the federal government cannot... Uh, determine uh, what marriage is. That act defined marriage between a man and a woman. Um, and the Supreme Court was saying we, that, that is not the right of the federal government. That's actually the right of uh, the states at that time. Justice Anthony Kennedy cited federalism as an important basis for his decision. He was a conservative who switched to the liberals on that court case, uh, giving a 5-4 majority in favour of striking down DOMA. Um, and he emphasised the federal government's historical deference to the states in the area of domestic relations. Um, the court is able to do this because it has the power of judicial review, which allows it not only to strike down state actions, but it also it can strike down federal actions too. So what's our little mini evaluation of the Supreme Court and whether it's harmed or helped federalism? Um, the Supreme Court's decisions on federalism largely reflect the ideology of the justices. The makeup of the court changes from appointment to appointment, and so too will their decisions affecting federalism. I am presuming, with a more solid 5-4 conservative majority, you will probably get more decisions that will favour the states, let's say on abortion and so on, uh, than the federal government. But watch this space because it is ever-changing. And next up, our last um, part of this podcast will be focusing on Donald Trump and whether he has threatened federalism. We're going to end by looking at Donald Trump and his relationship with the states. Um, have his actions threatened federalism and therefore threatened power sharing? Well, let's look at the evidence to say that they have. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security under Trump issued new rules on cracking down on illegal immigration. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions looked at ways to restrict the sale of marijuana in states that voted to legalise it very recently. Uh, Trump had, of October 2017, issued 49 executive orders, more than one per week since the start of his presidency, which goes to show that he... Uh, is a big fan of executive orders um, and um, ruling um, perhaps without Congress um, and maybe without consultation uh, from the states. So in some areas, uh, however, uh, Trump has returned power to the states um, but has been seen 
to be blocked from doing so. So, for example, his um, his plan to uh, scrap Obamacare, the the one of the ideas was to just give to give the administration of Obamacare back to the states. Um, now that would be handing power to the states. However, he was blocked by Congress from doing so. Does that mean that Trump has been, you know, anti? Uh, federalism i don't think so i think it perhaps shows that that congress wanted a federal law to remain and donald trump uh, did not so in that sense uh, his instincts really are to give power back to the states to loosen uh, restrictions um his um executive orders uh that uh um revoked Obama's clean power plan for example that set carbon dioxide emission limits on power plants to combat climate change um, and which sets state-specific reduction targets in his executive order 13783 um, Trump got rid of that clean power plan among other things um, that executive order reviews existing regulations I'm quoting here existing regulations that potentially burden the development or use of domestically produced energy resources unquote what he's doing there is telling the states, you can do your own thing. Um, President Trump has revoked Obama-era guidance to schools, letting transgender students use the bathroom of their choice. He's basically saying that is a state matter. If you want transgender bathrooms, you can have them. If you don't want them, you don't have to have them. Um, and some states and some cities um, have announced as well that they are so-called sanctuary cities, that they will not comply with federal requests to deport immigrants. Now, um, this is important because Donald Trump and his immigration rhetoric appears to be someone who is centralising power. He wants the immigration uh, authorities to go into cities, remove illegal immigrants and send them back wherever they supposedly came from. Many of them uh, feel they've actually come from the United States because they were here as children. Um and um, the states are not complying. So in areas where Trump is trying to be a centralizer, the states are pushing back against him. So in the era of Trump, federalism seems to be alive and well because federalism is ultimately tension. It's tension between uh, the states and the federal government. Now, I think that Trump's instincts is to give power back to the states, is to be someone who doesn't like regulations, with the, the exception of immigration. Um, Trump is philosophically opposed to government regulation, um, but as I've said, he's draconian in immigration. Um, thus, Trump's relationship with the states varies from policy to policy. Again, that tension uh, between the federal government and the states remains, and thus too, perhaps, does federalism. I hope you've enjoyed this show and we will see you again uh, for episode 10. Take care. Bye bye.